Well, praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11. Our text today is going to be verses 1 through 11 and a message entitled, Worship the King, which I think we've already been doing here this morning. As we think about this Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is the beginning of the Passion Week. Passion Week begins with Palm Sunday and then it concludes with Resurrection Sunday. The use of the term Passion Week goes back at least to the 12th century. Uh, It's rooted in a Latin word which means suffering or enduring. The Passion refers to the suffering of Jesus when he willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins by the shedding of his own blood. He came from heaven to earth to seek and to save the lost. This week begins with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, just as had been prophesied. Jesus is now approaching the end of what was a somewhat long journey toward the cross. And I think expectations in Jerusalem were running high and there was an unparalleled tension that was building. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Verse 11, he went into Jerusalem and into the temple and looking around at everything since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus had been to Jerusalem on previous occasions. Like any devout Jewish man, he had gone there for the major feast. As he prepared to enter Jerusalem this time, he sends for his disciples to make arrangements for his arrival. This event is referred to commonly as the triumphal entry, but if you spoke of Jesus making a triumphal entry to any Roman in this manner, they would have merely scoffed at it. To them, a triumphal entry would have been made by a Roman general after he had made a decisive victory and won over the enemy. When the general returned, there would be an elaborate parade. First would be the treasures of the enemy, then the prisoners, then the army marching unit by unit, and then the general would ride in on a magnificent war horse or perhaps in a golden chariot pulled by horses. Crowds would shout the name of the general and the procession would make its way until ultimately 
It made its way into the arena. In contrast, Jesus would enter the city on a colt as opposed to a war horse. He would enter the city as a man of peace, not as a conquering general. He would enter the city as a suffering servant. And for most of his ministry, he had quieted people who sought publicly to recognize him as the Messiah. But now we're in a moment when his time has come. We're going to consider Mark 11 today from the perspective of worship. The challenge, however, in considering it from a perspective of worship is that it is a study in contrast. Much of the worship and praise that was given to Jesus on that Palm Sunday was not because they recognized him to be the suffering servant who would save them from their sins. Uh, Many lavished worship and praise on him because they were looking for a messianic deliverer. They were looking for someone who would lead them to overthrow Rome. And when he would fail to meet their earthly and their immediate expectations, the crowds would quickly turn on him. So much so that the cries of Hosanna would turn to cries of crucify him in a short amount of time. And they would reject and they would abandon him. Now the idea of worship appears several times in the Gospel of Mark leading up to this point. In each of those appearances of worship in the Gospel of Mark give us an insight into who this was who had come. In fact, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 15 through 19, the verses that follow, uh, Jesus would go in and he would cleanse the temple. And the significant reason of why he would cleanse the temple is because it was intended to be a house of prayer for all nations, meaning that it was supposed to be a place of worship for everybody but they had turned it into a den of thieves. At issue was they were twisting worship. So I hope these few moments that we have together will give us a clear perspective on what should be included in worship as we consider three elements of worship from these verses. The first element of worship is that worship includes reverence. The bottom line is the disciples did what Jesus said to do. And the reason they did what Jesus said to do was because they revered him. They respected him in that moment. And at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples to make arrangements for his arrival into the city. He told them to go and they would find a colt tied on which no one had ever sat. This was rooted in the prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And here's what the scripture says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah prophesied of Judah after they returned from 70 years of exile in Babylon. Zechariah was a man who was a priest and a prophet. And although he had never seen a completed temple with his own eyes, he was quite familiar with worship. He wrote somewhere around the 5th century uh, B.C. before the coming of Jesus. And his writings contain what I would identify as the clearest and also the greatest number of messianic passages that we can find in the minor prophets. And some have referred to Zechariah's writings as a miniature Isaiah. 
Zechariah pictures Christ in his first coming in chapter 9 and then in his second coming in chapter 10. He foretold that Jesus would come as the Savior, the Judge, the righteous King, and he would rule over his people. And Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly. And then he described the Messiah as righteous, victorious, and humble. The righteous designation about Jesus describes both his character and his purpose. He would arrive in humility, and when he arrived in humility, he would ultimately be glorified by God the Father himself. The disciples were to say to the owner of this cult, it's for Jesus. And if they were questioned as they were, then the owners would permit the cult to go and to be used for the purpose that Jesus needed it for. Now, as we think about reverence in relationship to worship, reverence is connected to worship in the scripture, and it basically means a godly respect. It means a healthy fear. It means an honor of the one that you are respecting and fearing. So in this, it reflects not only your words, but it reflects your heart. And I want you to see the connection here because rightly understanding who Jesus is will rightly inform how we worship him. If we don't have a good understanding of who he is, then in turn, we're not going to worship him as he deserves. And reverence and worship should be expressed toward Jesus because of who he is as the righteous one. Reverence and worship should be expressed toward Jesus because of his authority over all. Reverence and worship should be expressed toward Jesus because of his lordship. Now think about the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 when he's thinking about Jesus and his reverence for him and the mission to which he had been called as an apostle out of due time. And he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11. He said, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul was saying, because of my respect of God, because of my reverence for Jesus, because of my understanding of the accountability that is due him, because of my understanding of who he is as the righteous judge, then I want to persuade people so that they might know him as I know him. And after all, is that not the uh, great commission? Is that not the words that Jesus has given to us to persuade people as his ambassadors? And verse 7 says, the disciples brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. I believe what people do for and give to someone is based on their respect for that person. And worship includes reverence. The second element of worship is that worship includes response. Now you'll note here that the crowds prepared the way for the Lord. And in verse 8, it says many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches that had been cut from the fields. Now what we find here is a turning point of sorts. Because for much of the ministry of Jesus, he had been despised and rejected by people. Oh, many in the crowds had come to follow Jesus, but they came to follow Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They came to follow Jesus because they wanted to see something uh, miraculous happen. 
They wanted to see something that was out of the ordinary happen. And there were people that would gather around because they heard that he raised the dead and he healed the sick. And he did all sorts of things that were beyond human explanation. And they wanted to get as close as they could to that so that they could see what was going on. And then there were others who followed Jesus and were in those crowds because they wanted Jesus to do something for them. They, they thought that they were going to get something out of Jesus. So in other words, it wasn't worship that was rightly placed. It was worship that was somehow presuming upon Jesus that they could get something out of him. And in doing so, they were rejecting personal commitment. But on this day, on this Palm Sunday in this triumphal entry, they honored Jesus by using their clothes as a saddle. And their clothes is what we might refer to as a red carpet experience of sorts for Jesus to ride in on. And if you think about something as simple as the value of clothing in that day, you'll identify that this was a generous response to the Lord. And the people responded to the presence of Jesus. Now don't miss this. The gospel and Jesus have always demanded a response. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Either we are with him or we are against him. Either we are following him or we're on our own path. And from the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus, he called for a response. And I think we, as the people of God, as we are sharing the message about Jesus, we are calling for a response. We are not just telling a story. We are calling for a response because when you are confronted with the reality of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, it demands a response. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus warned people and he called them to repent of their sins. And when he sent the disciples out to proclaim the good news, he sent them with a message of repentance and faith. A call to repent is a call to confess and forsake sin and to look to Jesus in faith. This is what the life of Jesus was all about. And when Jesus was crucified, the Gospels record several responses to the death of Jesus from those who witnessed it. The first response I would draw your attention to is a response of confession. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 47, it says, when the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God saying, this man really was righteous. The centurion saw what happened and he glorified God. This tough Roman soldier who led other soldiers, this man who oversaw the execution of Jesus when he watched the events unfold, Matthew's gospel tells us that he said, truly this man was the son of God. And church, this is the confession that each of us must make when we survey the cross. If we want to know Jesus by faith. Jesus was more than a carpenter. He was more than a teacher. Jesus was more than a revolutionary. Jesus was more than a righteous man. Jesus was and is the Son of God who willingly suffered for our sins. 
And when we encounter the Son of God who willingly left heaven and came to earth and entered into this sin-fallen world, when we encounter Jesus, the Son of God, who was willing to bear the penalty that we deserved on the cross, when we encounter Jesus, the Son of God, who was raised from the dead, overcoming death, hell, and the grave, then it calls for us to make a response to him. And that response ought to be a confession of faith. But there's another response in the scripture, and that was a response of contrition. In verse 48 of Luke's gospel in chapter 23, it says, All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they went home striking their chests. The crowds came for, as it notes, the spectacle. But as they observed what Jesus did and the way he spoke, and as they witnessed his love and his forgiveness and his mercy, they knew that something was different about this man. This was no ordinary criminal that was being crucified. He was in an altogether different category, and there was contrition that hit them. There was some sort of conviction that hit them as they went on their way. But the scripture does not say that they believed. They were just overwhelmed by what they had seen. And maybe you've heard that story of Easter and the resurrection and you know about the cross and you might even have a head knowledge of it and even believe it intellectually. And there might be some sort of contrition about your sin and about your life when you look to Christ. But if you don't come to that place where you repent and believe, it's nothing more than worldly sorrow. And the Bible says worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to life. And then the last response that I would point out is that there was a response of commitment. And I want to contrast this because Luke 23 and verse 49 says, but all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. But in John chapter 19, it indicates that there were some who were so close to the cross that they could hear the words of Jesus. In fact, John 19 and verse 25 says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So, so watch this. There were some who were interested in what were, was going on, they would have called themselves followers of Jesus, and many of them were later on, but they're out there on the peripheral. They're out there just close enough to kind of see what's going on, but not really get in the middle of it. And I would submit to you today that there are many people in churches, there are many people that get close to Christianity. They, they get close. They're out there on the peripheral somewhere, and they're kind of interested in the things of God. They're basically respectful toward who he is. They know about Jesus. They've heard the story maybe time and time again, but they still want to stay out there as far away as they possibly can. But then there are some, just as there were then, who have made a commitment and the followers who made the commitment did not show fear. They knew that it could have cost them personally. And yet there they were. I challenge you today to draw near to the cross with absolute commitment. 
out of love for the Savior. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus demands a response. And my prayer for you is that your response would be a response of confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord, receiving forgiveness of your sins, and coming and following him in a commitment of your life. The third element of worship is that worship includes rejoicing. Did you know that the Bible is a book about rejoicing? In fact, I would say that as Christians, we ought to be the most joyful people of all. There's this theme in the scripture of rejoice in the Lord. It's a prominent theme. It comes up time and time again. And that should tell us something because sometimes as Christians, as followers of Christ, we can get caught up in the Uh, thought patterns of the world as well and not live in a very joyful way. We can forget to count the blessings and to name them one by one. We can forget about the joy that God has given us as his children. But again and again in the Bible, praises and prayers and prophecies and principles in the Bible call us to rejoice in the Lord. It's been said that the Bible is the most joyful book ever written because it draws us into the joy-filled life in Christ. And on Palm Sunday, there was rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. In fact, Mark 11 and verse 9 says that those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, I already told you that this was somewhat of a turning point because Jesus had discouraged people from publicly celebrating him as the Messiah up until this time, but here he's welcoming public praise and adoration. And the rejoicing of the crowd was rooted in Psalm 118 and verses 19 to 29. The Psalms are grouped, and you say, well, why does that matter? Because the Psalms were basically the songbook of Israel. That's what they were. They used them for worship. They used them for particular times in their lives and particular seasons and particular celebrations. And uh, they would uh, exalt the Lord through the use of the Psalms. And this particular Psalm is in a grouping of Psalm 113 through 118, a group of Psalms called the Hallel Psalms, meaning praise Psalms. Psalm 118 is the conclusion of the second grouping of the Hallel Psalms and was called the Egyptian Hallel because it praised God for deliverance from Egypt. And they would sing these psalms at the Feast of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles and Dedication. And they would use this word Hosanna as a customary religious greeting at the Passover. And originally it was actually a prayer that was addressed to God that meant literally, Oh, save us now. And later it was used as an exaltation of praise, similar to when we would say, hallelujah, hosanna, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This calls for God's gracious power to affect someone or something. And it originally referred to a pilgrim coming to the festival and the crowd here applies it to Jesus with these messianic overtones. The coming kingdom revealed a hope for the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. And when they said, Hosanna in the highest, 
in the highest places, it probably meant something along the lines of, save us, O God, who lives in heaven. So you see what's happening here? They're appealing to the one above whom there is no other. They're appealing to the highest power of all, and they're asking for him to save them. And John tells us in John 12 and verse 13 that they took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Those palm branches represented their nationalistic desire to be delivered. When Simon Maccabeus delivered Jerusalem around 150 years earlier, it was celebrated with praise and with palm branches and with musical instruments. The palm frond had become the symbol of the second Maccabean revolt. And when we think about rejoicing and praising God, what we're saying is that we're rejoicing and we're praising God in the way that he wants to be praised. So the exaltation of Jesus is ultimately God's doing, and our praise is a response to that. You understand that our rejoicing and our praise is always a response to what God has already done. The reason that we can be joyful, the reason that we can rejoice always is because we have a God who loves us and sent his son to save us. And as Psalm 98 and verse 4 says, let the whole earth shout to the Lord, be jubilant, shout for joy and sing. So let me say it to you this way. God made you to rejoice in him. God made you to rejoice in him. If you're not rejoicing in God, you're not living according to the purpose for which you were made. We get drawn in by the things of the world and we try to find our satisfaction in those things. We try to find our peace. We try to find our relief and our hope. And all those things always, even though they might be good and not anything wrong with them in and of themselves, they're always going to fall short. And I do not want you to settle for less because God the Father lifted Jesus on high and we respond in rejoicing to him. I want to give you this quote uh, and then I'm going to come toward a close of the message. G.V. Wigram said, when one thinks of the wondrous glory of Christ, how astonishing that he can join with us. But more, when one thinks of his bringing many sons to glory at such a cost, one is lost in adoring amazement. Now, back to the study in contrasts in which Mark 11 presents. The coatless multitudes waved those palm branches and shouted for joy, but many, or perhaps most of them, missed the true significance of the presence of Jesus. They could not see, or at least could not understand, the significance of the cross. And when Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. And I'm going to tell you why he wept over it. He wept over people who did not recognize him for who he truly is. It is a tragic thing to learn about the Savior and not recognize him for who he truly is. May our worship be genuine from the heart 
filled with joy, focused on Jesus. And I want you to know there's coming a day when worship will be real and consistent and eternal. John recorded a scene in heaven featuring that eternal celebration of the risen Lord. Revelation 7 and verse 9 and 10. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So while that Palm Sunday triumphal entry was marked out by palm branches, it was also marked by inconsistent and in part at least insincere worship. But there's coming a time in heaven when those palm branches will be waved and all of the focus and the attention will be on Jesus. And he will receive all of the glory and all of the praise and all of the honor for all of eternity. And our worship will be due to him because he deserves it. And I do not believe in this life that anyone can fully measure the sum of eternal joy that can be found through faith in Jesus. But one day we will experience it in his presence. Listen to me. If our faith is in Jesus. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we pray. In just a moment, Pastor Eric's going to come and sing the closing song of response with us. And then after, I'll be here in the front of the building as we conclude to pray for you and with you and help you if you have a step of faith that you need to take. Friend, I don't know where you are spiritually today. Maybe you're you're close to the cross. You are close to Jesus and your faith and your hope and your trust is in him and you without a doubt know that you are saved. You are, you are a child of God. But maybe you're out there on the peripheral somewhere and you don't know him. You know about him. You've even heard this message today but you don't truly know him. What a wonderful time it would be as we enter into this holy week for you to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus and embrace him by faith. The gospel says that there is good news, good news that we can be saved. And that only comes through faith in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this wonderful celebration we have had today of Jesus. The songs that have been sung and the prayers that have been prayed and the word that has been preached. We give it to you as an offering, Lord. We, we have nothing of our own that has not come from you. And we return back to you what you have entrusted to us. And I pray today for every person in this place and everybody who will hear this message that they would be encouraged and they would know that there is joy in the Lord, that we have been created for the purpose of finding our joy in the Lord. And I pray in that, God, that you would get the glory and that you're kingdom would move forward and we're longing for that time someday when we'll be in heaven and we'll be gathered around the throne and those palm branches will be waving and all of the attention all eyes will be on Jesus because he's the one who is worthy this is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world for our sins and God in the meantime find us faithful Help us to be faithful as a church. Help us to be faithful in our families. Help us to be faithful as individual followers of Jesus. 
And we give this time of closing response over to you and ask you, Lord, that you would move in it and that people would respond as you lead by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.